and welcome to the 1989 Saul L. Malkin Memorial Lecture, the fifth, about which I shall have more to say after the 1989 lecture, who is this evening, I'm happy to say, Mr. Lucian Goldschmidt, a person who needs no introduction in this audience as one of the most distinguished booksellers of our time, and since he needs none, he gets none. Mr. Lucian Goldschmidt. This may be too much advanced advertisement, but we'll try to do something. It's in any case, it's a privilege to be standing here tonight and to say a few things about my experience. On many of the issues I feel quite strongly and in a way that means that I've been following the efforts made by Saul Malkin in whose memory this series of lectures has been established. In the zoological gardens there used to be narrow enclosures of wire mesh or of glass where one or two animals of the same species, say a weasel, an armadillo, a snowy owl, were neatly separated to be seen. Nowadays, we have instead whole habitats with natural growth within which different species live a somewhat appropriate life. No cubicles, no fences, often only a moat. The linear listing, the almost dried and stuffed character has been removed. The rich coexistence of variety is stressed. Scholars and collectors also no longer find it essential to search for the precise place occupied by works of literature or the arts in a known hierarchy of values. The great achievements were thought to have assigned places like flower beds in an extensive park, each was given credit for a specific distinction, somewhere higher and therefore through longer shadows. This implied a permanence of judgment. The amateurs were sure they knew what constituted greatness. When Martin Bodmer, the Swiss collector, wrote his Eine Bibliothek der Weltliteratur and formed a collection in keeping with those principles, he could rely on a vision partly inspired by Goethe's view of world literature. Even Ezra Pound, who was something of a revolutionist, felt that the term classics needed no explanation when he wrote in an issue of Exile in 1927. He knew that there were transient and permanent goods. Works of art and classics were among the latter. Who would be so sure today? No new Martin Bodmer is going to walk around among the scattered elements of a formerly accepted canon. Ambiguity and fragmentation are everywhere in modern creation. The cubists began by showing objects from different points of view, then dismantling them into fragments. And the writers of that time, like James Joyce, who mocked the methods of fiction, or Franz Kafka and his mysterious universe, they all required interpretation. From Samuel Beckett to Tabuki, what is being said is often not what is apparently meant. As the uncertainty surges around us, a disposition of anti-humanist doubtfulness is engulfing the reader. 
The dead end is Michel Foucault who claims that he knows of no fundamental truth, only patterns and symbols. Change surrounds us. Sometimes it's quite discernible as are some of the events reported in the morning newspaper. At other times, these are almost imperceptible, coming in undramatic adjustments. A small beginning has often inherent possibilities not to be seen at first. When Mayor LaGuardia removed the first rivet out of the condemned 6th Avenue elevated, who could see rising on that cleaner avenue the insipid series of sterile corporate headquarters? <laughs> who could foresee in 1951 when CBS ran in the New York Herald Tribune a full-page ad showing a youthful heroin addict and suggesting that you listen that evening to his mother's pain testimony, who could then anticipate what we now know about the drug scene? Not only can we hardly foresee the future, we cannot always tell what is the real truth. In 1636, the British statesman and collector Lord Arundel was sent on a mission to the German emperor in Prague. In his large retinue down the Rhine, Main, and Danube, there was Wenzel Hollar, the Czech artist who had settled in England, and a writer, an English writer called William Crown. Holler drew with winning directness landscapes, towns and villages seen on the way. From his sheets we might conclude that the scene was peaceful and contented. Crown, like a good journalist, did not picture the underlying beauty. This was a 30-year war and he described suffering and horror booming cannons, people close to famine, eating grass, pillage and burning villages. Both left us a partial aspect of the truth, or did both enter the outskirts of fiction? The change about which I am to speak here now is naturally worth clarifying. The change is offered as I see it. My first point would be the striking devaluation of literature and of reading, not of magazines, but works of literature. Even within the world of books, literary achievement has been receding. The fate of the Saturday Review of Literature is symbolic. From a position of great distinction gained soon after its beginning in 1924, it commanded attention for 40 years. As print culture weakened, it weakened. Reduced to being just a Saturday review in 1951, it died in 1987. There's nothing quite like it now. This remark is not destabilized, but rather confirmed when we think of the paid circulation of 17 million copies of Reader's Digest. I can easily recall a time when readers expected to find in their favorite authors answers to perennial questions of humanity. An eminent writer such as George Bernard Shaw, T.S. Eliot, André Gide, or Thomas Mann were credited with a depth of understanding better than that offered by texts on sociology, psychology, or the heavy guns of philosophy. The moment in the early 30s, 
the moment at which I began in this career, was the last one where these earlier attitudes still prevailed with a radical dismantling of high culture on the way. Here I was, aged 18, entering the world of books, prints, and drawings. The prospect was confusing. I could feel the scenery being moved. When I came to New York in 1937 to establish a very small branch for the still small firm of Pierre Berès of Paris, I could sense it as well. In the middle of all this turmoil, could I find a setting and an audience? Might I become integrated into the cultural life of this churning metropolis? The first and basic fact was the overabundance of material. Because of the First World War, and its consequences, the German inflation, the depression. How could these objects be absorbed by collectors and dealers? The problem was for them was not the supply, but rather how to continue buying with the expectation of placing those materials among credit-worthy customers who would pay their bills. When I'm talking about low prices then prevalent, I suspect that you actually do not recall what I mean. And while I don't like to speak much about prices, I think for a moment you must bear with me. Here then are a few prices that I witnessed in the first three years of my career. Say, the first Luther Bible in low German, in contemporary binding, 1533, over 70 woodcuts, $35. A St. Jerome Epistles, volume two of two, it is true, but remember, Rome, 1468, Swinam and Panards, in contemporary wooden boards, $105. 32 volume of Marian's topographies, bound in 15 volumes, with all the plates, $380. Or single volumes of that set for $35. An Audrey Lafontaine, four volumes, 1755 to 59, $55. A Voltaire of Kale, 70 volumes with 93 plates by Moreau Lejeune, $70. A fine bird book, Desmarest, on the Tangaras and Mannequins, 72 color plates for $27.50. The volume of Piranesi on chimneys, Diverse Maniere d'Adornare i Camini, $7.50. You could have a complete set of Pan the magazine with the famous Toulouse-Lautrec color lithograph to uh, Marcelin Deron Buste. Either in the deluxe form with all these many editions for $75 or ordinary for 21 If you will compare it with a price of $85,000 recently played, placed upon an ordinary copy here in this country. In the arts, Goya's Proverbios, Madrid, 1864, 18 etchings, then $65, now $25,000. A Kandinsky watercolor of 1920, $12. And his Kleine Welten, the whole set, estimated at $7.50 and not sold. Such a, such a set fetched $300,000 in June of this year. A Greuze drawing from the Hermitage collection bust of a young woman, $65, and two Klimt drawings together, forming one lot, $2.50. A Dürer woodcut of the rhinoceros, $10. And what about a Degas sculpture, lost wax, a bra cast, 35 centimeters high, at $80? 
or a Schmidt Rockloff painting, 1913, a table with South Sea sculptures, carvings, oil, 73 by 64, at $60. It doesn't seem very expensive. The same held true in New York, for that matter, and I saw a catalog of the Rains auction rooms, which had one of the rare sales of recent art. Major Léger oil, contrast de forme, went for $850. Even later, in the late 1940s, Nerdler offered the first sets of Picasso Suite Volard, that is 100 etchings, for $3,000 translated into dollars of 1989 that comes to say 16 to 18 thousand dollars many of the individual prints of the suite volar now sell at that price for just one out of a hundred enough about prices the message is clear with the granary so well supplied there were shops overflowing with tantalizing offerings from london paris to berlin and warsaw from Barcelona to Bologna and from Amsterdam to Lucerne. Right here, it was exhilarating, visiting accumulations far more expensive in far more numerous places than now, beginning with Dr. Rosenbach, Gabriel Wells, Lathrop Harper, the Drakes, you could pursue at Richard Worms, Phil Duchness, Arthur Pforzheimer, Baker and Brooks, the Scribner Rare Book Department, the House of Books. Again, there was Duttons and Thomas Gannon. There was Ernest Gieves, sporting specialist, the Chaucer had the Chiswick, the Brick Row bookshops, and so on. There were some on 59th Street, like Argosy and Dave Kirschenbaum, others around 4th Avenue. And furthermore, there began to arrive the displaced Europeans about whom Barney Rosenthal has spoken so well in a previous Morgan lecture. It was possible for an energetic and persistent lover of books to wander through an impressive array of materials. Outside of New York, other chances could be found in Philadelphia, which was the seat of the original Rosenbachs and of Sessler and of William Allen. Leary had a whole building full of books. Harvesting was possible in Boston with uh, Goodspeed's first in line and then in Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles. Even in Columbus, Ohio, at Long's, there were shelves everywhere and several floors of books and pamphlets. At that time, however, we are still speaking of the 30s, the gallery world has shrunk, had shrunk terribly, partly owing to the Depression and partly because much of the 19th century art had lost its appeal. While it is true that the American public had not yet opened its mind to modern art as we understand it today, it had ceased to want the huge wall-filling canvases of historical and genre paintings, generally in heavy, ornate frames, as they were still to be seen on 59th Street near the great hotels. There were not much above 30 galleries in all of New York, <coughs> where a figure of 300 now would be conservative. So in one word, what we have seen is the size and impact of the trade in fine and rare books has become smaller and more confined. The presence of art has taken on gargantuan proportions. Art shows are everywhere, in museums and galleries, in colleges, universities, in churches and banks, and soon, I think, in supermarkets. 
The Museum of Modern Art was very small in 1937, then housed temporarily in a basement at Rockefeller Center while awaiting the construction of its first building on 53rd Street. As World War II came to an end, the specifics of the trade underwent a transformation. The fear expressed during the conflict that huge numbers of books and works of art would be destroyed proved luckily to have been excessive. Grave losses were suffered in England, in Germany, in Russia, Poland, and Italy, but fortunately very much was saved. I remember when I was a soldier in the U.S. Army during the campaign through Germany, we came to the town of Kulmbach, in the Plassenburg Castle above Kulmbach. Multitude of displaced persons had been given temporary asylum. The conditions were bizarre, such as movie makers invent for lurid films with little fires burning on tripods and so forth and no electricity obviously what these persons these displaced persons had also done was to fill all the window openings now bereft of windows and block rain and wind with hundreds and hundreds of books we were not Sorry, because this castle had been a Nazi propaganda headquarter. And the loss of that propaganda literature did not really seem upsetting. Still, it was symptomatic of conditions where losses could not be counted any longer. When we took up our work again, my wife and I first as manager of PV Inc., Pierre Verres Inc., and since 1953 directing our own firm, it was clear that material was still abundant and at modest prices. The most immediate change was the entry into the market as a major force by the college and university libraries, by new institutions of learning. From Texas to California, from Florida to Massachusetts, in one word from coast to coast, search for books and periodicals took on novel proportions. A few figures will clarify the statement. Holdings of the university libraries rose at Harvard, from 4,159,000 in 1940 to 6,697,060 in to 9,548,000 in 1977. That is, they more than doubled in 37 years. At Yale, from 2,219,040 to 4,395,000 in 60 to 6,885,000 in 1977, they more than tripled in the same period. At Illinois, they rose from 1,217,040 to 3,288,060 in 1977. They were quadrupled. At Columbia here, with 1,715,000 in 1940, 2,876,060, they reached 4,730,000 in 1977. They did not quite triple. At Texas, from 639,000 in 1940, they reached 1,351,060, 4,054,077. They rose more than sixfold. At Indiana, from 345,940 to 1,317,060, they stood at 4,399,000 in 1977, better than a 12-fold increase. And finally, as to California, in taking just the two main libraries, we find that Berkeley arise from 1,081,040 to 
4,917,977, better than quadrupling their holdings, while at Los Angeles beginning low in 1940, with 347,000, they went to 1,464,960 and 3,908,977, a better than tenfold increase in 37 years. Nothing like that had been known before, nor is it likely to happen again. Many circumstances and many and various government policies must be credited, but the role of the ardent librarians was enormous. William Jackson of the Houghton, Chancellor Ransom of Texas, Donald Wing, James Babb and Fritz Liebert at Yale, Lawrence Clark Powell, the University of California, and so on. On a smaller scale, little-known seats of learning in Arizona and Oklahoma, in Florida and elsewhere followed the, the Lilly Library at Indiana, and at Indiana University and the Beinecke at Yale were solid demonstrations of vast ambitions. These librarians approached owners and their heirs, read advanced copies of dealers' catalogues, and some acted at the auction room. There were times when the bids of the University of Texas, represented by Lou Feldman of the House of LDF, made or unmade some of the sales of literary material in London. This too proved a passing phase, and in the 1980s we do not see outbursts of energy reflecting both gifts and purchases on that scale. Once again the individual buyer is the central figure, but a buyer for whom collecting and investment are not separable. The values are too high to buying for just intellectual or aesthetic enjoyment. Large segments of the buying public have been left incapable of following their former endeavors, teachers and scholars, professional people like physicians, lawyers. <coughs> While collecting was in earlier decades mainly a male undertaking, in the period I have traversed, a number of significant women have made their mark as collectors. I've known a good many of them, and have found great pleasure in the contacts. There were Mrs. Rachel McMaster Hunt, with her botany in Pittsburgh, Mrs. Mildred Bliss, who created the Garden Library in Dumbarton Oaks, Mrs. Doheny, Edme Moss in Geneva, Parmenia Miguel Ekstrom, <coughs> founded the Stravinsky Diaghilev Archives, and there is now Phyllis Lambert, who has composed an outstanding architectural collection, built a wonderful museum for them in Montreal that opened just a few months ago. And this is only a selection of a very fortunate development in our field. Returning to the problems I've mentioned before, we must look at a regrettable consequence of the change buying public as it now dominates the scene. There are many, many lots that are sold only to descend into vaults, unseen and unloved. These can be works of art, atlases, manuscripts, books. The justification is financial only. Their future depends on trading opportunities. They are better off, however, than the works that fell into the hands of the breakers. Audubon and Rodutti, Ortelius and Mercator, Piranesi and Van Vitelli offer the breaker large number of units of the same size and type. Simplifies merchandising. All the buyer needs is to make a selection among similars. Were he to buy Rembrandt prints, how confusing it would be all those aspects of size and subject matter, of state, adequate descriptive matter, 
It is much more difficult to be a dealer in Old Master Prince, but almost anyone can walk, who can walk and talk can be a dealer in vulturized sets. Research, study, and scholarship are unnecessary or even an impediment. <laughs> the breaking up of sets has gone beyond the volumes of Veduti or the birds and flower subject. They have raided artists' sketchbooks, sets of originals for book illustration and illuminated manuscripts. They have severed the bindings and the sewing that not only held these together, but protected the sheets so well. Would the Redouté lilies have looked so fresh, the Oudry drawings for La Fontaine so sparkling on their blue paper? Would Fragonard, Selby, Hubert Robert have come down to us so splendidly pristine if they had been operated upon a hundred years ago? And what about the Shahnameh? Even if a part of that masterpiece was given to a museum, is that gift justification for cutting it to pieces? Stewardship demands something more. The giddy rise in values of our patrimony is related to changes in numbers and to changes in outlook. As to numbers, there are more and richer purchasers than ever before. At the same time, the acquisitions, the college and universities about which we have spoken, were paralleled by the museums and by research libraries. And there began the export of whole collections in the recent past to Japan. A thinning out of the market is plain to see, and as to the change of outlook, it is manifested in the treatment of the books, manuscripts and artworks sold as if they were inert commodities. We think of these as cultural achievements, and they should be treated as such. What has also occurred is a privatization of the rare book trade. From the abundantly stocked and wide open emporium, a couple of continuations have evolved. Those firms which also had a large stock of new books, say Scribner's or Brentano's, they are gone. There we have instead stores of nationwide chains of the Barnes & Noble, Dalton or Doubleday variety, lots of books, but no depth in the selection. One salesman proudly told me at a Doubleday store that wanting a book more than a year old was futile. We have nothing that's more than six months old. Serves me right. The strictly rare book dealers often have retreated to a P.O. box and the warning by appointment only. The change makes it harder to examine the material. Pottstown and North Bennington may be among the more accessible residences, but often firms will be large where the foxes say goodnight to one another, as a German saying so graphically puts it. An additional reason for this privatization is the increasing value of the material, making theft and pilferage more frequent. In distant locations, such threat is naturally remote. The shift is noticed not just here in the States, but also in Europe. Naturally, it has helped the auction houses in the pursuit of desirable collections. When there is no dealer readily available, the auctioneer is quickly found. Nor can the dealer return the unsold items as is the rule with the auction houses nor can he promise a scintillating catalogue. The seller, or more often the family of the deceased collector, can then find a reason for pride in what that same family often stared at unfavorably while the books or other collectibles were assembled. 
During the Depression years, all concerned show, showed great forbearance in demanding settlement of unpaid bills. There was felt to be a need to encourage and attach collectors to your firm. Unsteady on their feet at that time, the auction houses also showed what is called understanding. By the 1960s, this had all changed. It was easier to sell, and we often knew of a constellation of potential purchasers. The newly bought material might not stay around for long. Dealers could say, everything in my catalog will be available by 10 o'clock on such a day. After that, it's a free-for-all. Valued customers had to compete as much as the others. If objects that are of major importance or are claimed to possess such a distinction fetch hitherto unimaginable prices, it's useful to introduce a note of caution. What our market trades in is without true product value if the materials involved are examined. The physical properties of a book, of a print, a drawing, an autograph are nothing except for the intellectual, historic, or aesthetic meaning that emanate from it. Articles assembled in factories, say a 16-wheel truck, have elements that by themselves have a commercial value. With us, much of the value must be assumed. Over a long period of time, a sort of structure has been put in place that allows judgment and valuation of the imponderable. Because the value of the paper or canvas employed is inconsequential, the mechanism of rising prices is bound to be more capricious and hence more dangerous. For that reason, more attention is paid to provenance. If a book or a work of art had been selected and kept by a noted collector, it adds a special seal of desirability. The undesired, like liquid passing through a sieve, was drained away. More perfect copies or more masterly creations remained. With the scarcity of truly outstanding works, auctioneers have initiated arrangements previously unknown in our trade. Guarantees have been offered for a collection, advance payments have been made for material to be sold later, or even financing of a purchase of some customers. You've read reports about the sale of the iris of Van Gogh, which was not a natural phenomenon within the accepted norms of the market. Without conducting any investigation on my part, I've learned of two other such sales of most valuable paintings, one here locally and one in Paris, where the principle of op open competition did not apply. Bidders should fight each other on equal terms, but that rule has been scrapped. This brings danger to the entire market, not just to the selling of paintings. Rearranged inducements to buy throw a shadow over the, over, over the objectivity of the cataloging and over the objectivity in the sales room. Dealers cannot carry such burdens. They cannot hope for like benefits, nor for the accolades of publicity. The truth is that now a distressing readiness is felt to jettison all niceties and, at the top of the market so far, to focus only on the bottom line. It will be tough to re-establish an even-handed rule. More than ever in my experience, the relation of values one to the other have become unsettled. It is clear that we cannot argue with the market. If there are buyers who want to buy Fischl the year of the drowned dog or a self-portrait of Chuck Close at figures similar to good Rembrandt etchings,
say Abram sacrificing Isaac or a cottage with a white paling, we can now allow, allow ourselves a pang of regret. No more. We already know that absurdity is in the air. Thinking of the future, however, we may fear what might be in store if the upward spiral skids into one turning downward. We cannot tell about how the various segments of the market will fare, but we cannot forget that there are true rarities and false ones. An object has been printed only a few years ago, and that may be very much in demand, cannot be truly rare. In that sense, no print of Jasper Johns or Frank Stella can be rare, like early printed books or works of art of preceding centuries. The recent work can be costly. It is never introuvable. Enough examples exist that can be lured out of hiding with a sufficiently rich offer. In a descending market, that distinction will become plain to all. The catalogues of dealers must be carefully prepared. The principles are personally identified with their claim. A good description is a sort of freeze-drying of the essence of the object examined. The reader can throw it out in his mind, enough to decide whether to purchase or to let go. Our trade publicity is mainly in the form of these catalogues. Unwarranted and inaccurate claims are quickly deflated. Unlike the fanciful promises of package tours or moisture creams, our offerings must be specific. A lacking leaf must be candidly reported. All cataloging has greatly improved over these past 50 years. We have been fortified by the greater number of better and better quality of new bibliography. In 1930, we did not have Wing or the Blanks Bibliography of American Literature. There were no Pforzheimer, Schwert, Hunt, Hunt Beinecke, Stevenson catalogs. Holstein had not started on his highly useful set on Dutch, Flemish, and on German engravings, etching, and woodcuts. The revised Palau was not at our service, nor the Schlosser Magnino. There was no Fowler for architecture, no Pras for emblems. We didn't have Adams, we didn't have Mortimer, and so on. All these research tools allow the specialist to dominate the subject. There's less need now to rely on memory. In the days of the early Quaritch catalogs and the Bulletin Morgan, even highly valuable and unusual books had only very short capsule description. They would seem unsatisfactory by today's standards. Apart from the new abundance of reference books, the difficulties of the Depression years had their part in that change. Illustration became important. While some binding catalogues had been issued early on with ample reproduction, Madame Belin, Gumushian, Max Brothers, and while some of the dealers in early printed books had reproductions of woodcuts, Jacques Rosenthal, Kilo van Transport, Voynich, illustrated catalogues were minority. The increasing lavishness, including superb color plates, livened up the relatively quiescent aesthetics of the field. Increasing care, better typography, and higher definition in the reproduction combined to enhance the object described. This has given a lift to many books, prints, and drawings that had been little regarded even a few years ago. The catalogues, often resembling volumes of the better art publishers, are presumably also more lasting, as it's very difficult to decide to discard them. 
think of the lavish efforts of H.P. Krauss, of Warren Howell, Nicolas Roche, Pierre Bérez, or Surget, to name a few. And last month, the early printed books gathered by George Abrams were beautifully presented in a catalogue with very scholarly descriptions for Sotheby's of London. But all improvements carry their own seeds of uncertainty. As the descriptions and illustrations are getting better and all embracing, will it lead the bookseller to provide new forms of catalogues on tapes, on fa film, on fax machines? The cost is rising, and it is known that the perfect description of works of art elaborated by the Getty Museum is too expensive and too time-consuming for the smaller museums. The question remains how much is necessary and how much is just a superfluous curlicue. Not everywhere has the word of book developed. A great loss is now felt because the gradual disappearance of the long-established dealers in scholarly and scientific books. The end of such a bulwark of our trade as the great firm of Martinus Nyhoff in The Hague is symptomatic. I recall the extensive holdings of such dealers when intelligent inquiry would be answered perhaps by a whole list of titles, but in any case by a postal card. The postal card offering is now a curio in booksellers' history. Of the following names, how many are gone? Others metamorphosed in Ovid's sense, unrecognizable. Das wissenschaftliche Antiquariat is really on the way out. Think of Steckert, later Steckert, Hafner, of Fock, Harasowitz, Hirsemann, Olschli, Höppli, of what was Foyles, what was Quaritches, Francis Edwards, Sutherland, Blackwell, Swetson, Zeitlinger, Lucien Dorbon, Vrin, Picard, and so on. The many ways of photocopying had their share in this loss. Also, professors do not have private libraries any longer. I have once upon a time seen collections of professors running from 20 to 40,000 volumes. How could they now form such libraries on their salaries and with current prices? How could one go on filling a building, say five floors, with books worth owning and allowing a profit when sold? Where to find the trained help? Earlier there were accumulations of past generations that came from castles and country houses inherited dwellings with inherited reading matter, or from families squeezed by financial troubles. I remember a gentleman not noted for his kindness who said of another collector, sure he is forced to disgorge some of his books. He's down to a mere 50 meters. <laughs> when books and, and atlases, prints and autographs were so plentiful, the larger dealers were ready to consign to younger practitioners quite attractive objects not essential to their operations. The earliest catalogues of Herbert Reichner when he set up in New York had a substantial assist from Marx Brothers in London, I've been told. Foreign dealers and also local collectors would visit you to inquire whether you wouldn't be willing to place some of their holdings. The experiences of booksellers and dealers have frequently been recounted by some of our predecessors. Most of them have wandered down an avenue of anecdotes. Dr. Rosenberg, who probably sold more astonishing books and autographs than anyone else in this century, wrote several such books. There you can see the, air, airy, the era of the lusty acquisitors. Among those volumes that make good reading, 
I find the recollections of Ambroise Vollard and those not yet translated into English of the Viennese bookseller Christian Neberheil. Here and at some other tomes, the reader watches with disbelief how casually even major deals were handled. When Neberheil's father, together with two other experts, bought the enormous collection of Dr. Albert Fichtor, they laid no proper groundwork. They did not have a list, and they had no lawyers to help them. Well, it shows because, in fact, that, re that deal ruined Mr. Gustav Neberheil for good. <laughs> when pa Percy Muir wrote Minding My Business in 1956, he mentions with apparent approval that the firm of Elkin Matthews had been staffed with people who were neither professional booksellers nor businessmen. Knowledgeable amateurs, that's what they were, Gaison Hardy and the others. The firm had success, but it was a time of abundant material, readily available. I doubt that this would work now. Most of them did not notice how the word was changing around them. And when you read Dr. W. Jung, in his memoirs, he says in 1939, I'm almost willing to claim that in our sharply delineated profession, nothing new can be introduced any longer. He spoke as a man who had been trained in the 1880s, but without looking around at what was happening right next to him. Percy Muir just mentioned, did our field a great service by joining with Menno Herzberger W.S. Kündig and others in helping to set up the International League of Antiquarian Booksellers. Relations between dealers of different nations are of great importance. With the arrival of airmail service, these relations became faster and more frequent. Until 1947, only few nations had their own booksellers' organization. The setting up of the ILAB at that time allowed for advantageous cross-fertilization. In 1973, the Japanese organization hosted the Congress for the first time. Such activities also were for the benefit of librarians, scholars, and collectors. Fairs were held, a dictionary of the trade was issued, bibliographical prize was awarded, and in the most recent years, unfortunately, we have seen a slackening of that imp impulse, very noticeable in the U.S., which is, however, the largest of the national association. Why that lethargy? Why that relative provincialism? We should overcome it. An intensification of the international ties will be crucial to further development. Would be fair to note that setting up of the Antiquarian Booksellers Association Center, thanks to Leonor Rostenberg and Madeleine Stern, in its two locations in the Rockefeller Center, tried to be representative of the trade. For some years, it was a workable solution which achieved cooperative publicity for our aims, generally improving business outside and the diminishing book trade inside the center hastened its end. The bookseller has need of a long-term vision. He can contribute to shaping the views of the buyers, whether they are gifted, inventive, even brilliant, or just average. The cumulative furthering of a project over several years can yield results, economic as well as scholarly. Knowledge can be found in the most unexpected places. When I was an apprentice, I came to know a young man, scholar, called Schottlander, who studied images on Greek vases because he hoped 
that he would discover how the ancients tuned their instruments by observing what they did in these vase pictures. So naturally he needed many texts and reproductions in the hope of elucidating this dark corner of musicology. I hope he has succeeded. As the world fitfully evolves a new order for its future, the materials we have can be of value to the scheme. These works can be a cornucopia of educational power, even if that was not the purpose for which they were written. Just because information is placed so high on the agenda, we may discover that there are practical uses to thousands of books not normally so thought of. Not every travel writer obviously can be a Tocqueville or a Christine, but many of those hardly noted had a set of experiences and views that offer food for thought. Books of natural history and descriptions of plants once cultivated and now neglected can help us enrich the sadly diminished store of varieties that modern large-scale farming, since modern large-scale farming has become dominant. Here we might find hints as to what to save from the oblivion. There are efforts now to bring back some of the varieties used in South America before the conquistadors came. In the late 1950s, Professor Kinsey and his crew brought from me and from many others, no doubt, novels of the preceding 50 years in order to illustrate the erotic atmosphere as it had evolved from Victorian to permissive. I wonder whether it would not be worth a try to constitute now a larger assemblage reflecting our attitudes and signs of wish fulfillment, say from the era of the great Gatsby to the bonfire of vanities. This attempt at perceiving our motivations should be applied also to the terrible taste for violence that runs through whole stretches of recent fiction. On printing and the mind of man, based at first on a collection formed by Ian Fleming, was enlarged and systematized by Percy Muir, Stanley Morris, and John Carter and others. The show and the catalog created great incentive for collectors, librarians, and booksellers to enter a field not much considered until then. Books have been written with a view to improving mankind, leaving aside the question whether they actually achieved such a distinction. Such tomes seem to be of wonderful interest. I published a catalog along that line in 1981. In similar fashion, the history of science has been a topic that gained respectability in the 1930s and led to the formation of such exceptional collections as those of Horblet, Honeyman, Dibner, and de Gaulle. Other specialists stressed the history of the fine art, performing arts, architecture, development of bibliography, and more recently the history of publishing. Should also mention the field of feminism, ecology, first books by writers, baroque book illustration, festival and funeral books, detective stories, literature and art in the Slavic world, and so on. Sometimes the crystallization of a new subject is owed to the original approach of a particular collector. To give but one example, want to mention the lengthy investigation of colors by the late Faber Biren, who built an infrastructure to his work as a color consultant by forming a well-composed library on that topic. There are, in fact, a good many subjects like these that offer considerable potential. Millions of cameras have been clicking at different shutter speeds. Millions of Amateurs, however, fail to concern themselves with the development of photography and the remarkable achievements of that medium. One hundred years after Talbot, Yeps, and Daguerre laid the foundations, almost no one collected in that field. 
The firm of E.P. Goldschmidt in London, under the impulsion of Dr. Ernst Weil, published a catalogue containing in its second part a collection of early photographs and books commemorating the centenary 1939. In the preface, the authors say that we are for the first time issuing a catalogue listing a selection of this kind of material. They add that it's difficult to convey the individual charm and interest, and that they therefore want to encourage potential customers seeking uh, in asking for shipments on approval. Fifty-four original color-type portraits by Davis of David Octavius Hill could be had for 35 pounds. Twenty portraits by Julia Margaret Cameron stood at 18 pounds 18, and a set of 48 large photographs of the American Civil War by Brady's assistant to other practitioners were offered at 15 pounds and 15 shillings, to no avail. They all essentially remain forgotten and disdained. This is actually more surprising when you consider that many artists saw the significance of photography, like Degas, for example, and Picasso. In the 1950s and 1960s, little by little, the museums and libraries began to organize their accidental holdings. And when I say accidental, I mean it. At Harvard, they discovered, owing to damage to one of their roofs, that they had in crates, unopened, a large collection of photographs on the Near East by Bonfils and his atelier, unrecognized for over 75 years, and then found thanks to the damage. Thus, from being treated as documents, the photographs, albums, and photographically illustrated books began finding a public that saw that Negre and Le Grey, Gardner, Mybridge, Watkins, Kalja, Ache, Emerson, and Stieglitz offered a great deal more than records of people observed or skillful cutouts of the world at, world at large. Suddenly it appeared in the 1970s that large-scale acceptance had arrived. Attics and cellars were ransacked to offer photographic nourishment. Dealers and auctioneers went into the field and obtained the results that were denied the early enthusiasts. Starting with nine collections, including that of Sam Wagstaff and parts of that of André Jam, the Getty Museum recently blossomed into a major repository of photographic treasures. Even so, not more, even rather less than a dozen major public collections exist in that field in the United States. Subject dimly perceived in 1937 was fine bookbinding. Neither the dealers nor the collectors gave it more than passing attention. No new Mortimer Schiff had arisen. When the final portion of Cortland Field Bishop's holdings, the so-called Paris Library, was sold in, the in 1948, many of the purchasers were foreign dealers acting on their own behalf or for foreign collectors. Even less attention was paid to the fascinating evolution of modern decorated bindings, as it was set in motion by Pierre Legrand. Philip Hofer and Karl Kuyp were among the few people who would even look at such creations. When I suggested a show of Paul Bonnet bindings at the Museum of Modern Art, I was not able to make my point. It surprised me because they were much interested in good design, including doorknobs and coffee brewers. In 1941, I was able to arrange a show and sale of 45 French bindings that had been on display at the New York World's Fair in 1939. We had examples of Rosa Adler, Paul Bonnet, the son of Pierre Legrand. 
just to give you a sense of how modest our demands were, we offered Apollinaire, the poet assassiné, with the Dufy lithographs, decked out in an inlaid binding by Rosa Adler, $430, while one of the key works of modern book illustration in a striking black and white Morocco of Paul Bonnet, the Enchanteur Pourissant, went for $150. The increase by today's evolution, uh, valuation would be more than 100-fold. Let me add, they did not sell fast in 1941. The museums and libraries were not tempted. Various obstacles had to be removed before the decorated binding was tolerated. Ornamentation or modernistic design were not gaudy and indulgent, after all. Modern art actually did have a voice of its own, even if many critics in the newspapers and magazines still were sour or hostile to the modern trend 30 years after the Cubist breakthrough. Added to that, there was a paucity of local binders that might have influenced the tastes of their patrons. In 1948, we issued a catalog with about 400 items reflecting the modern movements in art and literature. From Rimbaud and Apollinaire to Joyce, Zara, Breton, favorable response came from the colleges and university libraries and from some artists. What sold less well were the very items that were soon to be the most in demand. We did not sell Max Ernst, La Semaine de Bonté, nor the Histoire Naturelle, not Picasso's Dreams and Lies of Franco, and not Marcel Duchamp's Green Box for $40. 1948 was still too early to gather a broader response. The fervor that we now can feel was not anticipated. The modern illustrated book began its innovative career around 1893. It did not gain acceptance until well into the 1950s. When in 1937 the Museum of Modern Art organized a show and produced a catalog, modern painters and sculptors as illustrators, it had only limited success. But by the time the artist and the book, 1860 to 1960, appeared, to accompany a show at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, 1961, the unpromising start was forgotten. New generation was able to see what a significant chapter of interweaving texts with artistic creation had occurred in the recent past. Those who had fostered that recognition, like Monroe Wheeler, Karl Krupp, Philip Hofer, were comforted by the heightened acceptance of what had been thought a shadowy corner of the book world. Now some of these creations, like Jazz of Matisse or the Prose du Transsibérien of Sonia Delaunay, hold canonic positions. And many others are given recognitions as works of art, not just as books with pictures. This success had led the auction houses to focus on the illustrative part of the work, downgrading the existence of a book. You can now see the modern print sales describing a set of original graphics and then almost with regret add at the end that there is a text. This is a hideous and greedy way to treat these books, and I think we should object to it. This attitude also encourages the scavengers who cut the volumes apart in order to extract the plates. One aside, the definitive text about modern illustrated books has still to be written. What we have had so far in the US, in England, in France is nothing but 
a rehearsal for the real effort that should be undertaken. These topics have, left, have led to a widening <coughs> horizon in the book world. It remains to be seen whether that's enough. While we must maintain the historical part of our mission, help the study of art and literature, of science and technology, of laws and religion, in clar clarifying how past societies have operated, we must all add all that can be achieved thanks to recent technological advances. Multimedia mass storage and the body of electronic memory may be fitted into our confines. There's such an abundance of facts and knowledge to be stored. Printed material is not enough, is not alone enough. <coughs> With this mass of stored information, it must be recalled, it will not be equally available. It will be at the service of limited groups in a limited number of countries. Some nations will find themselves information rich and others information poor. The size of our problem is enormous. I've read that one-third of the collections of the Bibliothèque Nationale has been produced since 1945. That means over four million items in 44 years. Yet, admittedly, that library has not kept up as much as it should with foreign output. Michel Mullot of the Centre Pompidou estimates that the library catalog of the Bibliothèque Nationale will soon grow by 200,000 pieces a year, only some 30% of which will be in French. Such figures must breed disquiet. It is not only the sheer bulk of the problem that is unsettling. While we are lucky that we have not suffered major assaults on the role of thinkers and writers, such as had been orchestrated by Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, we have experienced the bitter years of Senator McCarthy and his witch hunts. We have also had many of our elected representatives take a very dim view of the usefulness of scholarship then and now. Intellectual leaders are essentially powerless. The resolutions of our national and local problems are often left to the manipulators or the fervid spokesmen or spokeswomen of organized pressure groups. This is a thought that we should not lose sight of. But what is, in a way, even worse, in places where it should be known better what our work means, understanding history and the strands that characterize our culture, they have found only a limited response. A man as brilliant as President Conan of Harvard once asked William Jackson, to supply him with a number of books that he wanted to consult. He added to that request a brief note saying that he didn't want first editions or any rarities. Bill Jackson found most of them in the Harvard libraries, but in rebuttal he added a note that a large percentage, I believe from memory that it was 40%, had never had a second edition. These are only some of the obstacles that are placed in the path of scholarship. Much of our work as booksellers is in close relation to the health of the scholarly community. We need them just as they have a need for what we can do. Their achievements still are developed in papers, essays, and books, but also in films and other forms of image records. 
These pose a further hazard because images conjure up a greater imprecision in their message than a well-written, chiseled text. The vocabulary of writing is more defined and precise without, for all that, deadening the thought. The presentation of an image, and even more, the presentation of a sequence of images is far more diffuse as it ties in with emotions that are not necessarily those that propel the film. Furthermore, film strips and tapes are also less durable than paper. Fortunately, paper is the least expensive way to keep the results of thought, research, and imagination. We do know that to hold a book, to read it, to reflect on it, is the central intellectual fact of Western civilization. What the scholars achieve is not shown on a highly visible stage, like the winning sports champions. Delayed gratification is very common because the impact of their work may be slow in gaining acceptance. It must be the cause itself that provides the incentive. In Buddhist religion, the faithful are encouraged to undergo austerities. Thanks to such striving, they may attain enlightenment. The world at large will perceive it and revere them. Our scholars already know about austerities. We hope they are on the way, on the road to enlightenment for their own sake and for ours. As for reverence, it's not a commodity of our age. In conclusion, I must say that the question asked early on in this talk, whether I might find a setting and an audience, whether I might become integrated into the cultural life of this city, can be answered positively. With unflagging help of my wife, we have developed so many valuable contacts and friendships that the effort seemed to me to have been beneficial to us and not without merit for the world around us. Thank you very much. know it's a sea of faces in front of me we don't get a sea of faces here very often it's good to see you all <coughs> normally on this occasion I have to announce the publication of last year's Malkin lecture on this occasion I have to show you the proofs <laughs> of last year's Malkin lecture which as you can see is a monumental undertaking by the time of uh, Mr. Gowans' publications are accounted for. We didn't quite make it. You have, however, a considerable incentive for signing the guest book in room 523, because if you do, then you will get sent to you a free copy of last year's Malkin lecture with our compliments. And if you come to next year's Malkin lecture, where our speaker will be Mr. Thomas Tansel, then I have every hope of your being able to receive this year's Malkin lecture on time again as usual if Mr. Tansel's length uh, as is likely uh, is such as I can get it through the press in time. I might add that the cause of the delay in getting Stoddard is mine and not either Mr. Stoddard's or the Steinauer Press's.
We now adjourn to room 523 for champagne and the usual condiments. I hope you'll come and say hello to our speaker there, and thank you for coming.